Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey everyone, welcome to episode number 158 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. After a one-week hiatus, uh, my co-pilot Nick is back with me as Matt is out for today, so welcome back, Nick. Good to be here. Did it feel always. weird not being here last week since you were going on a good month, month and a half of it, streaks in a row? It did. I had a pretty good streak there, but uh, all good things must come to an end, but uh, I'm back. We're starting back up again. Starting back. Well, thanks for taking the time this morning, Nick. And before uh, we begin, as always, just want to take the first few minutes to recap the numbers for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on July 13th. And this data is from YCharts. S&P 500 index up 0.4% for the month and down 20.2% for the year. The Dow Jones uh, flat for the month and down 15.3% for the year. The NASDAQ composite index up 2% for the month and down 28.1% for the year. The IWM ETF that tracks the Russell 2000 index is up 1.2% for the month and down 23% for the year. The Vanguard International uh, All World X US ETF down 2.4% for the month and down 20.4% for the year. Three month T bill currently yielding 2.4%. The two year treasury rate is at 3.13% and the 10-year treasury rate at 2.91%. So obviously there, Nick, we have uh, a pretty good inversion, uh, meaning the two-year treasury is yielding more than the 10-year treasury, uh, which is not normal, for for lack of a better word. And I know that you're going to kind of go into that here, uh, talking about big headlines and current events and kind of what this means for the market going forward. Yeah, I was about to say that leads us perfectly into the the big headlines and current events. So I'm sure I'm sure a lot of listeners have have seen these headlines. We have two for you. Uh, one is a, an article off Bloomberg, but it was on all the major news sites. Uh, U.S. bond curve inversion reaches levels not seen since 2007. Um, and the inversion that they're talking about was what you just mentioned the the two and the ten year um, and what they talk about there is, uh, and, and actually before I kind of get into that, I'm just going to read a few highlights from, from the article. Um, one point was the spread between the two and the 10 year inverted briefly in 2019 and back again in April, 2022. So listeners have heard, heard us talk about this recently. Um, for reference, we talk about when the yield curve inverts, there's going to be a re- recession Technically, there hasn't been a recession yet. The yield curve can invert and then uninvert and then invert again. It's not a, a, a guaranteed thing that we're going to have a recession. So just pointing that out for listeners that we did see an inversion back in April. We're seeing one again. Um, another point I want to want to read here is the current inversion uh, comes amid increasing concerns that measures taken by central banks worldwide um, to rein in inflation might end up driving the economy into recession. So that's really what's what's happening here is it's fears of 
fears of recession that are coming and that's that's yeah, and this is one of the indicators that have, that has been um, pretty good at, at predicting recessions over the next, you know, anywhere from six months to two years, mm-hmm. usually yeah. when the, the yield curve inverts. And again, you know, if you're listening for the first time, you know, the yield curve, when we talk about the yield curve, a normal looking yield curve is when longer dated bonds are yielding and paying a higher interest rate than shorter dated bonds. So in a normal yield curve, the three-month T-bill yield is below the two-year, and the two years below the 10-year, 10 years below the 20-year, 20 years below the 30-year, that type of thing. Because if you think about it, if you're locking your money up for a longer period of time, you have to get paid for that, right? Rather than, you know, because there's a lot more risk of things that could happen in a 10-year period than there can in a two-year period. So in a normal environment, the two-year U.S. Treasury bond is paying people less than a 10-year Treasury bond would. Mm -hmm. But we get these points from, from time to time where that flips. Yep. And to me, that just signals that there's more risk priced in in the short term than there is in the long term. So looking out 10 years, I think things are, are going to be a lot better than, you know, the uncertainty over the next couple of years right now with the way the economy's going, with inflation, with the war in Russia and Ukraine, with supply chain, uh, consumer spending slowing down. So I think that's why you're seeing this quote unquote inversion. I just wanted to give people a little bit more color to that if if they haven't heard that before. Yeah, exactly. And and another, you know, while we're while we're on the yield curve lesson here, just to, to take it one step further, um, for listeners, the the price of a bond and and the yield are uh, inversely related. So as people buy the bond, the yields go the yields go down. So when you think about what's happening now, like you just said, there's more risk in a two-year period, so people demand a higher percentage. So they're going to be a little bit more picky as to what price they're going to buy. So with the supply and demand versus the 10-year, people are buying more of the 10-year, which is pushing the yield down. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of how the supply and demand with that works. And and it's a curve because it's a, excuse me, it's a it's a curve on the graph, and you know as the demand changes yeah and let's just let's go a little deeper on that so that the inverse relation uh between bond prices and interest rates i just want to kind of break that down so that people can have a better understanding of it right so let's take you know a bond that was issued in 2020 um it was issued by xyz company and they're paying three percent per year let's say for example for you to hold the bond for the next five years and as interest rates rise, when companies issue new debt, they have to raise the interest rate that they're paying people to hold that debt to make it enticing for them to buy it, right? Yeah. So you have this, this bond that was issued in, in 2020 that's paying 3% per year. But for example, maybe now in 2022, since interest rates are going up, companies are issuing uh, debt at 5% per year. So obviously people are like, well, yeah, I'm going to buy the bond that has the higher interest rate. Mm -hmm. So in turn, that bond that was issued in 2020 at a lower interest rate at that 3%, that bond price has to fall to make it more enticing for investors to purchase that bond. Because again, if you hold a bond to maturity and as long as the the company doesn't go bankrupt, you're going to get your money back. So there has to be an incentive for people to buy the lower interest bearing 
bond because they're going to get the appreciation of that bond back to par value at maturity to to make up the difference for not getting that 5% interest rate, right? Exactly. So that's why that there's that inverse relationship between uh, bond prices and bond interest rates. Yields, yep. So. All right. Um, good little yield lesson for everyone. And yeah. hopefully that helps. Um Give you guys a little bit more information. The next, the next piece I had was on CPI, and just to uh, give you guys a quick update, the CPI print came in yesterday. It was hotter than expected. Um, so on a year-over-year basis, total CPI was up nine point one percent. Consumer price index. Yep. Uh, thank you. Uh, versus eight point six percent in May, and the core CPI was up five point nine percent versus six six uh, percent in May. So. Um, for people who don't know, the core CPI just excludes fuel and food costs, which sometimes, particularly fuel, can be quite volatile. So it's a especially way, especially right now, especially right now, it's it's kind of a way to to look at a little bit more of a, a focused view of of a basket of goods. Um, but it came in it came in higher than expected, and a lot of Wall Street did not expect the the headline number that nine point one. Um, to, to be that I think the the consensus was in the, the mid eight range depending on what what, you're, what source you're looking at but um, the key takeaway of the report is that inflation pressures remain broad based and elevated uh, even when accounting for a slight dip in year over year core inflation um, you know total CPI accelerating to, to nine point one percent that's the fastest rate of increase since uh, late. 1981 so that's the stat you might read is the fastest year-over-year rate of change since 1981 Mm -hmm. um so that's that's kind of the the big headline and uh, you'll 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 hear about it you'll read about it yeah uh, and i think the thing that i took away from this is core cpi has continued to come down or decel we still have inflation right and we still have inflation and core cpi using that as a reading but it is decelerated over the past four months. So Absolutely. I personally, and again, it, my opinion is as good as anybody else. I think inflation has peaked and, you know, the Fed raising interest rates and slowly, very slowly uh, reducing their balance sheet, which I know you're going to get into in a yeah. little bit, has had an impact on the demand side of inflation. But the, the Fed cannot control supply side inflation, which is energy costs. And in my opinion, energy costs are directly tied to food costs because you have to ship food all exactly. over the place. Right. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I would continue to expect that energy costs are going to remain elevated um, for the foreseeable future until we get some sort of resolution out of the Russia Ukraine war. Um, So it is I I think it is a good sign that, you know, core CPI is coming down and we just need to get this energy problem figured out to to start to move forward and get back to a a normal environment, quote unquote, normal environment, whatever you think that is. Yeah. Yeah. So um, so not not all bad. But again, it's the, the big problem right now is energy, in my opinion. Uh, moving on to tweets, articles, and research from this week. Uh, first thing that I had, Nick, was um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about 
new stocks that were added to the Russell 1000 value index. In I'm just going to jump in here because I've read ahead a little bit. I love this already. <laughs> so the, the two largely followed growth and value indices are the, the Russell 1000 growth index and the Russell 1000 value index. So the indexes or the indices are completely uh, reconstituted annually to ensure that new and growing equities are included and represented companies continue to reflect growth and value characteristics. And today, uh, and, and there, it's rebalanced, uh, reconstituted once per year in June every year. Okay. So today I wanted to focus on the Russell 1000 value index. So uh, by definition from Russell, it includes those Russell 1000 companies with relatively lower price to book ratios, lower forecast, medium term growth, uh, two years looking out and lower sales per share historical growth looking back five years. The Russell 1000 Value Index is constructed to provide a comprehensive and unbiased barometer for the large cap value segment. Price to book is a uh, valuation ratio that is measured by taking the stock price and dividing it by the book value per share. And the book value is essentially just the tangible accounting value of a firm compared to the market value that you're shown by multiplying the uh, the total outstanding shares by the um, by the, uh, stock the total stock price, yeah, yeah, to get you your total market capitalization. Yeah. Um, and I thought it was it was interesting because some notable so-called quote-unquote growth names were recently just added to the Russell 1000 value index in June. So some of those names include Meta, which is also known as Facebook, Google, T-Mobile, PayPal, Micron, and Netflix. So by all measures, at least over the past 10 years, these have been hyper, hyper growth names, Nick. So these additions kind of like shocked me a little bit, to be honest. Particularly um, the PayPal and the Netflix ones. Right. And, and even Meta. With right. Their strategy change. Right. So and so I wanted to dig deeper on this. And these companies price to book values have actually dropped significantly since the start of the year with the carnage that we've seen in the stock market year to date. What a great time to add them to an index. Right. What a great time to add them to an index. But the other thing <laughs> that shocked me is I was like, hmm, I wonder if these names got removed from the Russell 1000 growth index. Not. Didn't happen. So Meta, Google, Netflix, PayPal, and Micron are still members of the Russell 1000 Growth Index. So my takeaway for listeners, Nick, is not to get too hung up on the growth versus value debate. Um, I think people make a bigger deal out of it than it needs to be. Is is, is growth going to outperform or is value going to outperform? Because there's several names that I just listed, five of them, that are members of both indices. Mm -hmm. So it's like you can't have your cake and eat it too. So I just found this quite interesting. And you know, this is one of the reasons that we're agnostic to growth or value or small, yeah. mid or large cap. Really doesn't make a difference for us. We just wanna own you know stuff that's going to go up relative to the market for the next several years to come. Yeah, the, the value index are uh they're, they're stocking up on growth names. Yeah, they're stocking <laughs> up on growth names. So so maybe we're going to get to the point where it's like, okay, all these you know growth names uh, have become so cheap now that those names are going to become the value index. And then value 
air quotes is going to outperform with kind of growth names. You know, so. we've, we've talked about this a lot over a few podcasts and that's one point that I don't think we've ever come out and said, which is like, okay, what will we'll outperform? We've showed some charts about, uh, you know, value outperforming growth in these types of environments for X number of years. Are we in that type of environment? And a lot of our comments were around how the society looks different today and how big tech is different today. And one thing that we didn't point out is, well, if you take all the big tech names and then you make them value names, then value may perhaps outperform the growth names, right? It's all about how these in indices are compiled. And so this right. is a perfect, perfect example to kind of put a pin on that argument. It's all about the, the things that are underlying and and how they overlap and how they don't overlap. Yeah, I'd be interested to see funny. because obviously there's names that, you know, transition from their, uh, you know, their growth phase into a more value yeah, phase. More than, mature company. Yeah, yeah, instead of growing at 25 or 30% a year, they transition to growing at 9 or 10% per year. Yeah. Um, and, you know, as companies mature and get bigger, I think, they have a historical tendency that it's obviously harder to grow at that rate when you're a bigger company. Yeah. And you yeah. start returning cash to shareholders, paying yeah. a dividend, and then eventually it becomes a, a value stock. Right. So mm -hmm. uh, I'd be interested to see, you know, going back, you know, how many of these growth names have gotten added to the value names. And I think it'd be interesting for someone to do research on this to see the contribution of value performance in the mm -hmm. Russell 1000 value index, how much of that has been from companies that have gone from the growth index to the value index? Or that are also in the growth index. Right. So, And if they get added to the value index, do they get taken out whenever their growth yeah. inevitably shoots higher? Because it's kind some of blurry. Of these, some of these names that you mentioned, that I mean, PayPal, Micron, I mean... Their growth. It's hard to <laughs> it's hard to make an argument that they're yeah. value names. But yeah. anyways, I digress. Yeah. Uh, moving on was a uh, tweet by Carl Quintanilla. He works for CNBC, and this was on June thirtieth. He tweeted a chart from it looks like it was from Bespoke Nick um, mm -hmm. of fifteen percent quarterly drops for the S and P five hundred since uh, World War Two. So this has happened uh, nine times since World War II where there's been uh, a 15% or greater drop in the S&P 500 in a single quarter. And I'll have Jenna throw this up on the YouTube page, uh, but if you're not watching on YouTube, uh, you can check this out at our show notes uh, on Twitter at Jessup Wealth or LinkedIn or Facebook. Um, Jessup Wealth Management. So what this shows is it shows the quarterly drop that was greater than 15%, and then it shows returns for the next quarter, the next half, and the next year. So looking out one year from a quarterly drop of 15% or more, Nick, since World War II, the average next yearly return has been an average of 26%, which is pretty strong. Tells me it's a good time to buy. Yeah, it does. It does. So, you know, again, I feel like we've been uh, putting these charts and these data out on the podcast now for, it seems like, for the whole first half of this year. Mm -hmm. I know people probably might be getting a little sick of it because things have not started to get better yet. 
Um, but the next article, I'm going to go into kind of the length of bear markets and how long it takes to recover and that type of thing. Um, but again, it this is going to take a while to, to play out. But um, I, and again, it's only a, a very small sample size. This has only happened nine times. And each of those nine times, the, the forward one year return has been positive and on average 26%. Um, obviously, th this time could be different, but we like to use uh, history as our guide forward. So, and any time, right? Any time you get a substantial drop in the markets, the forward returns just get that much better, right? Right. Um, so this isn't shocking to me, but another uh, data point to tell you that once this market correction and bear market does solve itself out, returns going forward should be pretty good by historical standards. Yeah, and just a reminder to listeners, when you look at these charts, don't expect it to be a, a beautiful bottom and then just a, a lovely linear straight line up to 26%. It's going to be a choppy market it is. For, for the rest of the year, and um, hopefully it trends higher, but it will be choppy. There will right. be a lot of volatility. Right. Um, like I mentioned, uh, my next one was a blog post from Ben Carlson titled, How Long Does It Take for Stocks to Bottom in a Bear Market? So Ben says, uh, and he puts this chart up um, here, which I'll have Jenna throw up on the YouTube page as well. Uh, he says, this is every bear market since World War II, along with the number of months they lasted, peak to trough, and then how long it took to make your money back from the bottom. Add it all up, and the average bear market has lasted a year and then has taken nearly two more years to break even. So, uh, you know, from peak to trough, from the highest high to down 20%, it's taken an average of 12 months to get there. And then, you know, to break even, to get back to the point where we were at that peak, it's taken almost two years to get there, okay? He says, some are longer and some are shorter, but there's another way to look at this. When those peaks happened, no one knew for certain the market was going to fall 20% and go into a bear market. No one knew for sure it was going to happen this time around either, but here we are. Now that we're in a bear market, we can ask a different question. How much longer do bear markets last once stocks are already down 20%? So this next chart that I'll have Jenna put up on the screen um, shows how long it has taken for the market to reach the 20% drawdown threshold and then how long it took to reach the bottom of the bear market. So uh, by looking at this chart, Nick, um, the, the time it took to reach that 20% bear market threshold, on average, it took about 236 days. But the good news is the days from that 20% to when the bear market bottomed was only about 131 days, okay? So he says the good news is it typically takes much longer to reach 20% losses than the bottom, which makes sense when you consider not every bear market goes to the extremes. The best case bear market scenarios would be the 1948, 49, and 1957 downturns that hit the 20% bear market loss and immediately bottomed. The good news here is that seven out of the last 12 bear markets have bottomed in 46 days or less once the 20% level was breached, and five out of the last 12 were over in less than a month. The other side would be the 1973-74 bear market, which took 10 months to bottom once the bear took hold. The 00-02 crash took nearly 19 months until the bottom. Uh, 20... 
uh, excuse me, the 2009 bottom was eight months later. As always, you can find historical data that makes you feel better or worse about the current situation. So, you know, I just wanted to, to point this out to listeners so that they have an idea looking at the past, you know, how long do bear markets last? Mm-hmm. How long does it take to recover everything that we've lost? Um, so I think Ben put some some pretty good numbers to it. And while no one knows or can predict the future and how much worse this is going to get or not, you know, I think you can kind of use this that, you know, it might take some time to get better, but at the end of the day, it's going to get better. Right. Indeed. So, Indeed it will. Um, so yeah, I would, again, personal opinion is that a lot of the damage has already been done. Um, doesn't mean there can't be more damage to come over the coming weeks and months, but we are heading into a seasonally strong period for midterm election years towards the end of the summer, early fall here. Um, so just because the uh, S&P 500 has gone into a bear market in the first half of 2022 doesn't necessarily mean that the second half of 2022 is going to be just as weak. Yep, absolutely. Right. I'll turn it over to you. All righty. I've got a couple good ones for listeners here um, and probably a couple that have also been mentioned in the news. The first one I'm going to start with is a strong dollar, which I'm sure has been covered in, in some of the major news news stories. This is a tweet from Lisa Abramowitz uh, over at Bloomberg. This was a tweet from 712. Um, and Jenna will throw the chart up here. Um, uh, she says the dollar keeps strengthening. Uh, with uh, DXY, which is just the dollar index, now at its highest level since 2002. This is a Euro story with fears of of recession growing on the heels of of a potential gas cutoff and a yen story with Japanese extreme monetary policy divergence. But it's also a a stuff the mattress trade. Um, You know, a a couple comments here. really what's going on with with the dollar strength is uh it's a big piece of it is the uh, the differential in monetary policy um you know, the ecb is still maintaining a negative interest rate uh despite record inflation of 8.6 percent uh japan is still at their negative 0.1 percent rate uh, so you've got that going on and then you also have uh really more drastic economical impacts and and chances of recessions in Europe, particularly relative to to the US. Now, one of the reasons this has been hitting the headlines a little bit more off uh, a little bit more is because we're we've officially reached parity on the on the euro dollar. Not exactly, but it's like one to one point oh oh something something. Um, And what is that? What do you mean by when you say parity? One dollar gets you one euro. Thank historically, you. one euro would get you, you know, one, you know, one point one. I'd, I'd have to look at the averages. So don't mm-hmm. quote me on that. Yeah. I don't know the averages, but but historically, the euro is stronger than the dollar um, for for going on years and years and years now. So um, a, a pretty big deal. And this chart will will kind of explain it. Um, but just a, a quick reminder for listeners, because I think a lot of times we think. A strong dollar, like yeah, my dollar is stronger, um, which can be uh, good in certain aspects. But a- another way to think about it, just a quick macroeconomics review for everyone: um, a strong U.S. dollar uh, can actually be bad for for large cap multinationals, uh, big multinational corporations. 
um, because it makes our American goods more expensive overseas. Um, if the U.S. dollar continues to appreciate, then it could have a negative long-term impact because those overseas customers uh, will begin to turn away from American brands. So think about it as someone making a product in the U.S. and they're trying to sell it overseas. But if our dollar is more and more expensive, the price of that, especially as inflation goes up and we're trying to pass off, uh, the, the companies are trying to pass off the cost of the consumers, they're raising the price in dollars as well. But if the dollar is stronger than the euro and the yen and everything, it makes it even more expensive, meaning overseas customers might say, you know what? I'm just going to buy the local brand. Even though I really love this American brand, I'm just going to save the money because at this point it's 20% more expensive than my alternative. Right, which could have a ripple effect back to the States when these multinational companies are reporting their earnings. Earnings growth could slow. Revenue could come down just exactly. because people aren't willing to pay up for the American product anymore. Exactly, exactly. So um anything else you, you any thoughts you have on no that? i think there's been a lot of people are keep saying that you know a strong dollar is is bad for the stock market but there's been periods of time when the dollar has been rising and the stock market has risen right alongside of it as well um i think for the majority of the time the, the stock market likes a, a, a weaker dollar yeah um but there have been periods where stocks have done just fine under a strengthening dollar. So I don't think it's like a scenario where it's like if the dollar is rising, then stocks aren't going to bottom. I, right. I don't think that's the situation that we're in. I think it just has a, a bigger effect, obviously, on the exchange rates and how many euros is worth a dollar and vice versa. And, and things are just getting more expensive like they are around the world. Yep. For United States citizens traveling in Europe right now, Good for you. It's good. Yeah, good, good sign. Yeah, go take that trip to uh, yeah. to Italy or, or Europe or, you know, anywhere good, over there. And good timing. Dollar will go good, a long good way. Good timing. <laughs> uh, the next thing I have is a, a cool chart. It's a, a, a chart on valuation and earnings growth. And this is a, a tweet from uh, Jurian Temer. He's a director of Global Macro at Fidelity. This tweet was on, I was also on 712. Um, and he says the following, Jenna will throw this chart up for you. Really cool chart. Um, we are in that awkward phase of the market cycle where earnings growth is slowing and valuations are compressing. Given the severity of the PE compression, uh, minus 35% from a year ago, if the slowdown does not turn into a contraction, then we will likely reach, then we have, have likely reached the point at which things at least don't get any worse from here. Ongoing earnings growth, albeit slower than before, combined with steady multiples equals a modest uptrend for equities. That seems like the market's best hope at this point. And what I mean about it, it it's, you might have to look at this chart for a second because it it's a little funky. It's really two charts kind of stacked, like layered on top of each other, but you can see kind of a, a, a typical trend where, um, you know, as your, as your EPS year over year is kind of peaking and turning around, the, the, the multiples are, are doing the, the inverse. And um, you can kind of patch up that, that awkward thing that he's pointing out. But um, pretty cool chart. So. Yeah, and I think, you know, this is kind of, ex I guess, expected in this type of market, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, earnings growth is decelerating, uh, stocks are selling off, uh, valuations are getting cheaper. Um, so, you know, for all those 
people out there, not trying to pick on them, that said that the stock market was too expensive. Uh, you know, valuations have come in 35% so far, and that's more than how they came in in uh, 2018, for example. In 2018, when we had that mini sell-off uh, yeah. in, in the winter months, uh, in the, the end of the year in December, yeah. that came in about 27%. Uh, for valuations. And now, you know, valuations have come in 35%, which is uh, significant, significant, the most yeah. significant, I think, in since 0708. Yeah. Um, so one could make the argument that stocks aren't that expensive anymore. Mm -hmm. I know that we're getting back to historical, quote unquote, valuation levels for the yeah. S&P 500. Um, and average it can, levels. Right. And yeah. it can continue to fall if earnings growth uh, continues to come down. Yeah. And we just don't know what that's going to look like. I think, you know, we've seen already uh, some of the big banks report earnings uh, this quarter. Uh, JP Morgan just reported this morning and they've seen uh, a slowdown. I think it was 28% in their earnings growth um, as they see kind of what's on the horizon for the economy and they think we're going into a slower period, uh, at least yeah. for the next, you know, six months to a year. Um, but Again, if you're a long-term investor, I think this chart makes a really good argument that stocks have uh, gotten a lot cheaper than they have been in several years, and that this potentially could be a good point to dip your toes in the water uh, if you're not going to need this money for you know another several years. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That kind of makes sense why uh, Jamie Dimon was so bearish a couple months ago, huh? Yeah. He, yes. knew, he, knew, it was coming down he the knew what this earnings report was going to be like, so... <laughs> Um, again, I, I wouldn't get, get too tied up in this or, or this chart, but I, I just think the big thing to take away from this is obviously stocks are a lot more cheap than they were uh, at this point last year. Yeah, so absolutely. Uh, the last thing I have is uh, an update on the Fed balance sheet, and this is from Compound Advisors. It's from a research report on, on 7.9. Um, also, we'll throw this chart up here. I love a good chart. Um, and the, the, the quote along with this is the following. The Fed's balance sheet is finally moving lower with the start of quantitative tightening, but it remains less than 1% below its all-time high. The transition from QE to QT has only just begun. It's an interesting chart. Um, uh, I think it just shows you how little the Fed has done and how much more the Fed could do. I, I honestly wish I could also throw, throw another chart. I don't have it here, but just looking at the Fed's total assets um, just on a normal chart, and you could also kind of get a, get a sense of it. Um, the Fed has barely even scratched the surface with this. They still, that's a pretty big tool in their tool belt to, uh, to impact the bond market particularly, so. Yeah, and can you just explain really quick, like, their balance sheet when they're like reducing their balance sheet what is that like what does quantitative tightening actually mean like what are they doing sure so i'll start with quantitative easing which uh, most people have heard that term going back to 2008 because that's really when it started um, when the the federal reserve came in and to help alleviate pressure in the economy and pressure in the bond market they were actually buying up mortgage bonds and they're mm -hmm. buying up securities and they're when when they're buying them they're 
they're owned by the Federal Reserve. They're not the governments. They're the Federal Reserves. They're on the Federal Reserve's balance sheet. Right. And in exchange for that, they're providing cash into these bond markets, right? Exactly. They're, they're providing cash, i.e. liquidity. They're kind of keeping things afloat. And what they've done, and, and, and it was successful, you could, you could argue. Um, and so what you've, what, what you've seen over time is their balance sheet has gotten bigger and bigger and bigger because in, in 2020, uh, they did the same thing where they poured a ton of money and they bought securities and they're, I mean, they're f- just so much money. It, it's, a, it's a massive amount of money that the, the Federal Reserve is, is buying up. So that's quantitative easing. Quantitative tightening is the opposite. What they do, and, and there's different ways that they could do it. They could, if they were trying to be really drastic, which they will not do this, but they could go out and just absolutely flood the market. They could just sell everything. And I mean, it could be an absolute bloodbath. And then they would cause, uh, they would cause what Jamie Dimon would call an economic hurricane. <laughs> they won't do that. One of the ways they do quantitative tightening is they let their bonds mature and then they just don't buy them back. Right. And so you kind of get this slow fall off of their balance sheet. Um, which is a, a safer, slower approach, but they can also speed that up. So the, it, it's the ball is in their court. So they have that, um, and and then they have the rate hikes that they can do to kind of help. And and a lot of the focus has been on the rate hikes because the rate hikes uh, are thought to combat inflation more significantly so by bringing f- down demand. Exactly. So so the the focus has been more on the rate hikes, and and this has kind of been in the background, even though they talked about it pretty significantly back in. April, March, Mm -hmm. maybe. Um, So I just wanted to throw this chart back up here because you're not hearing a lot about it. It's going on in the background, but not very significantly. So it's just another tool in the Fed's belt to uh, to impact the the market and the economy. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for explaining that. Mm -hmm. Um, Moving on, this is uh, a financial planning topic of the week that I found that was really helpful because it's easy to understand and it's something that I think is overlooked from a transition of wealth standpoint. So um, this is just kind of a snippet from a blog post from Mike Piper on The Oblivious Investor. And this is around uh, bequest allocations or how you leave your money to the next generation when you're no longer with us. So he says your bequest allocation is what portion of your assets will go to which parties upon your death or upon the second death of you and your spouse. It's wise to take some time to think about which assets should be used to satisfy which parts of your bequest allocation. First things first, tax deferred accounts like traditional IRAs or traditional uh, pre-tax 401ks are the ideal asset for giving to charity because the charity doesn't have to pay any tax on the money, whereas any individual would have to pay tax as distributions are taken from the account. And for the opposite reason, the Roth accounts should go to a human rather than a charity. That is, a charity has no reason to prefer Roth dollars over tax-deferred dollars, whereas your kids or grandkids would definitely uh, prefer Roth dollars. So should the Roth IRA go to your kids or your grandkids? Back when Roth IRAs could be stretched over a beneficiary's lifetime, it often made sense to leave them to the youngest people to get tax-free growth for as long as possible. Today, though, they are often uh, having to be distributed over 10 years regardless of whether they're going to kids or grandkids. So now it often makes sense to leave the Roth dollars to the generation that has the highest marginal tax rate, right? Because when you take money out of a Roth, there's no tax consequences. 
taxable assets work well for either party. Again, any assets are tax-free to tax-exempt charities, and any humans who inherit taxable assets will receive a step-up in cost basis, thereby allowing them to sell the assets immediately if desired and incur little to no tax. In short, the idea is prioritize Roths for humans, prioritize tax-deferred accounts for charity, and to the extent possible, especially prioritize Roth assets for humans with the highest tax bracket. So I think a lot of times people just get so caught up that they make beneficiaries the same exact on all of their accounts, Mm -hmm. but that doesn't account for if people are charitably inclined and just how, you know, we take diversification into account when we're talking about um, investments, we have to do the same with tax consequences. So Mm -hmm. obviously if it's important to you to leave money to your kids or your grandkids, you want to put them in the best position possible to be able to use that money and pay as little tax as possible. Right. And it's the same thing for charity. But, you know, with charity, you know, you can donate money from an IRA or a, uh, a taxable account and they're not going to pay taxes either way. Yeah. So why donate tax free money to yeah. a place that is going to have no yeah. tax consequences anyway? Right. Yeah, don't do that. So <laughs> uh, if you haven't looked at this or, you know, and if you're charitably inclined and you're trying to figure out where to leave um, assets, I guess, upon your passing. I know it's never fun to talk about your own mortality, but it is a important conversation, uh, that I think needs to be had with everybody. Um, start to think about this a little bit and and get with your advisor and have some conversations to see if your bequest allocation is set up in the most efficient way possible. Um, because again, it could have a, a massive effect on your heirs, um, down the road when you're no longer with us. Yeah. No need to pay uncle Sam any more than you have to. Right. Right. Exactly. So again, something I think that's overlooked, I think Mike did a really good job of just, um, kind of explaining this in, in layman's terms. So, uh, we'll also provide uh, a link to this if people want to go and read this, um, and refer back to it. Um, that's all that I had, Nick, anything else you want to leave with listeners before we end it here for the week? Nope, that's uh, everything. Hope everyone enjoyed it. Uh, Earnings season has started, like I mentioned before. Uh, Big banks are reporting uh, this week. Uh, Mm -hmm. JP Morgan reported this morning, so it's going to be interesting to see how these uh, earnings reports come in. I'm sure there's going to be inflation is going to be the most used word in a lot of these earnings call when we're all said and done with uh, earnings for this previous quarter. So. Keep an eye on this. Uh, if you see big stock moves in one way or another, it possibly could be uh, attributed to company reporting earnings or reaction to an earnings call. Mm-hmm. Um, so just be aware of heightened volatility uh, for the next month, month and a half here. So uh, thanks, everybody, for listening to episode number 158 of the Independent Advisors podcast. And we will be back with you next week for number 159. Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. 
also check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of The Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties, which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved. Advisory services offered through Commonwealth Financial Network, a registered investment advisor.